0: open your Bibles in uh, uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 9 to 22, chapter 24 of uh, the book of Matthew, verses 9 to 22. Uh, this is in page 829 of uh, your Pew Bibles. Let me just say something about um, what we are being or have been seen in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, especially in this chapter. Jesus is doing right now what is known as prophesying. And if you know anything about prophesying in the Old Testament, um, we have the apostle, uh, excuse me, the prophets, seen as if we were seeing a mountain. So from the distance, we see two mountains, and they look like they are one over each other. But once you get close to the mountain, then you are able to see that there is a chasm in between, that they were not as close at each other uh, as as they were before. Same thing with Jesus Christ when he prophesies. Both uh, parts of his prophecy are taken very close to each other. That is the destruction of the temple and his second coming. But that doesn't mean that um, that Jesus is giving us an exact time Of when these things are going to happen rather he's speaking about the certainty of the things that are going to happen these things will happen as certainly as as you can see and as you can feel it from the text So we are not to doubt about what Jesus is speaking to us. So remember that as we are going through uh, chapter 24 and the cyclical nature of this prophecy of Jesus, that is, things that are repeating itself once and again and again until Jesus comes back in glory. So with that in mind, please, congregation, stand to hear the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. This is God's word. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, during the 16th century, uh, the Reformation ideas reached a country named Belgica. And uh, is what today is known as the Netherlands and Belgium, basically. And as the Reformation penetrated in the country, persecution became more and more fierce against the reformers who were preaching in there. In 1561, Guido de Bray, a reformed preacher, prepared a confession of faith expressing what the scriptures taught, and this confession is known as the Belgic Confession. In 1562, a copy of the confession was sent to King Philip II, together with an address signed by every single one of the pastors and members of the congregations, declaring that they were ready to obey the government in every lawful thing, but that they would offer, and let me quote, they would offer their backs to the stripes, their tongues to the knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire. Why would anyone say that? Because they knew what kind of Savior Jesus was. And because they knew that Jesus never promised his disciples eternal happiness here on earth. And do you know where they got that that idea from? Chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. So this morning we will examine what Jesus has to say about it under two headings. First, kingdom under attack. And second, uh, the epicenter of kingdom opposition. So kingdom under attack and the epicenter of kingdom opposition. So let's see the first part, uh, kingdom under attack. Now, remember what I just said uh, before we read the scriptures, that Jesus's address to his disciples is like a panoramic view of history. This is not a detailed description of the end of the world. It's rather the characteristics that will be present in every single age of this world until Jesus Christ comes back. Now, we said last week that Jesus was describing the order of the cosmos during his already present millennial kingdom now. What comes now uh, next in these verses is a concentration upon the era of the church in the same age. In other words, what is going to happen with the church until Jesus comes back in glory? That is the question that Jesus is seeking to address. What is going to happen with the church? So listen to verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I hope you notice how Jesus is not talking uh, anymore about the cosmos, creation, but he's actually speaking to the disciples, to, to them. It is the disciples that they will be handed over to tribulation and they will be put to death. And it is them that will be hated by all nations. In other words, Jesus is speaking to the disciples directly, but Jesus, congregation of the Lord, is also speaking to you and I. Maybe you are thinking, Christian, how do you know that he's speaking about us? Well, I have several reasons for that. First, if these verses were only meant for the disciples, then we will not have them recorded in the scriptures. Scriptures in several places affirm that Jesus spoke and did way much more than what we have in the Gospels. And uh, things that we don't know about, that were meant for the disciples, but not for us. Scriptures also speak about revelations that are sealed, that we can't understand because they are not meant to be understood by us. All of that means then that everything in the scriptures that are speaking plainly and are, is handed over to us apply to us as well. They do have an application for us today. Another reason is the language that Jesus Himself is using. All the nations, Jesus says, all the nations have to hate what the disciples represent. And hardly that means only the Roman Empire. But the term all is comprehensive, meaning every single one of the nations. In other words, there is more in view here than simply the disciples and the Roman Empire. This is a, descriptions, a description of every single nation under the world hating, opposing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is sending to them through his disciples, through his church. This is, in other words, an active opposition against the gospel. This speaks about Paul and Peter being burned and, and crucified in Rome about Polycarp, burned at the stake in the second century, about missionaries in the early Middle Ages being killed in Scandinavia because they brought the message of the gospel, about the reformers being persecuted, about missionaries in Ecuador in the 20th century being killed because they tried to reach the native tribes. But it also speaks about you and me. The term tribulation not only refers to big, huge persecutions, It is also used in the New Testament to refer to common struggles that Christians undergo in their lives when they follow Jesus Christ. As soon as we become Christians, as soon as we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and confess publicly that we believe in Him, we, congregation of the Lord, become enemies of the world. And sin, the world, and the devil will try to bring everything they have against us. We will endure problems, calamities, sufferings, pains, all of that because we belong to Jesus Christ. And yet, here is the comfort of this portion. First, that Jesus Christ himself is not surprised by those, but that he is in control over those circumstances. He's announcing us in advance what what we should expect. And that is tribulation, not victory, tribulation. Second, at the same time, the New Testament testifies to us that even those tribulations, even those calamities, God uses to strengthen us, to make us more like, uh, my, more, more like Jesus Christ, to mold us after his image. So on the one hand, yes, we will see suffering, sometimes suffering coming from our own country, from our own people kind, from our own neighbors. Yet, on the other hand, we can endure those sufferings with confidence, knowing that God is working in us, that with Him those sufferings are not in vain. He is making us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Sufferings, problems, calamities, persecution, all of that are part of this present evil age in one way or in another, and we will experience those. But God, in Jesus Christ, will never ever abandon his people. He is with his church until the end of the age. Now read verses 10 and 11. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. See, apostasy will have its effect in the church of Jesus Christ. Um, It will be common in this present dispensation of the kingdom of God. Many seeking to save their lives will and have betrayed Jesus Christ, have they not? Many seeking to win over the world will and have betrayed uh, eternity and have forsaken eternity. And many will and have simply preferred themselves instead of following Jesus Christ. Apostasy, betrayal, not in the world, but inside the church, should not be a surprise for the Church of Christ, brothers and sisters. It certainly is not a surprise for Jesus Christ. And in his mercy, again, he's letting us know in advance that those things will happen. So we are not dismayed when we see those inside inside the church. And again, the whole age of the church is a witness and a testimony about that. In the whole of history, many have preferred to abandon Jesus Christ. Many have introduced themselves secretly inside the church to destroy her. heresies. False teachings have always been part of the struggles that the church has to endure. Paul, for example, struggles with legalism and antinomianism in the church. Peter mentions those who twist scriptures for their own perdition. And John says there were some who were among us but were not of us and have left the communion of the church. Gnosticism in the second century almost destroyed the church. Arianism in the 4th century almost did the same. Prosperity gospel and false teachings are eroding the church even as we speak. And it seems like we cannot pick any period of history without finding at the same time a heresy, a false teaching that is attacking the church. From the perspective of the church under the cross, that is, right now, this idea is overwhelming, isn't it? As if there were no relief for the church. But do not be dismayed, brothers and sisters. The church of Jesus Christ stands over a strong and firm foundation. Not you and I, not ourselves, not our efforts, not our pastors and elders, but Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have a firm foundation. The church will never perish, even if sin, the world, and the devil attack her. The church in this world, Congregation of the Lord, is indestructible, indestructible. Apostasy, persecutions have come and gone, but the church still stands even today, and it will stand until Jesus comes back. Listen now to verses 12 and 13. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We have encountered this word lawlessness before, haven't we? In the context of the Gospel of Matthew, it refers not only to violating the law and going against it, but also means unbelief. And Jesus is saying that unbelief will also be part of the present evil age inside the church. And unbelief always has consequences, doesn't it? When unbelief rules, God does not rule, so to speak. An an unbelieving church is a church that has handed over herself to the devil. It is a church that embraces the world and rejects Christ. It moves with the current trends and abandons scriptures. So there you have it. This is the whole picture of the church until Jesus Christ returns. While we are in this present age, Problems and tribulations, persecutions and apostasy, false teaching and unbelief will be part of their reality. And what is Jesus' call then for his church? What is he asking us to do? What is he speaking to us this morning? Let me tell you what. His is a call to persevere. It is a call to cling to Jesus with all your strength and all your might, even if everyone around is jumping into the wagon of the devil. It is a call to look up to him even in the most strangest, hardest, difficult times that you will experience with the firm conviction that the one who called you to himself will never abandon you. He who who has God on his side has nothing to be afraid of. Nothing. Nothing. And that is why, despite all of this bleak and dark picture that Jesus is painting for us, he still affirms, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, the indestructible nature of the church lies in the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel will advance against all opposition, against all the devices of the devil, against our own deficiencies, against everything else. Why? Is it because God is promising us success, triumph, a golden age here on earth where we will be happy and sing Kumbaya? No, not at all. Rather, it advances because God's word, His gospel, is powerful to fulfill His promises despised all of oppositions. God's gospel will reach every single heart of His elect and will still bring salvation to the last of them until the end of the times. Our confidence does not rest in our strength, nor in our capacity to to transform the world, but in the firm conviction that God will bring salvation to His people and He will advance His kingdom even when it's under attack. Now, let's move to the second point, where we see the epicenter of the kingdom of God. Now, if the whole present age of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ is characterized by calamities in the cosmos and calamities in the church, then where does that start That Where is the beginning? Is there a main movement in the history of the world uh, that marks the beginning of those calamities? Well, Jesus again starts with the disciples, and from there he moves until the end of the world. In other words, what Jesus is describing applies directly to the disciples, but it also applies to the circumstances of the church until he comes back in glory. This, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is like throwing rocks at a pond filled with water. When you throw a rock, you immediately notice that there are waves that form and affect the whole pond. In the same way what jesus describes the big rock that god's providence is about to to throw in the pond of history is about to start and these big waves will affect everything until the second coming of jesus christ now what is it though what is the big rock that starts this movement listen verses 15 and 16 so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet daniel standing in the holy place let the reader understand then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains the holy place brothers and sisters is no other than the temple of god in jerusalem jesus is affirming that daniel's prophecy will be fulfilled and that his own prophecy that he just spoke several verses ago will be fulfilled in the lives of the disciples they will see the destruction of the temple And the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the whole of Jerusalem, will be the punishment for the Jews. But it also is a sign for the disciples. A sign that things have changed, that God is no longer pleased with Jewish religion that has reacted in unbelief. And notice what Jesus suggests believers living in Jerusalem in those days should do. Look at verse 17 and 19. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or in the Sabbath. Now, do you want to hear what these verses mean? Yeah, like, yes, Christian, we want to hear. Well, it basically means run. Run away from Jerusalem. Run away from this place. Do not think that God is going to have mercy upon the temple and upon Jerusalem. Because the time of her judgment has arrived. That is what it means. That had to be a really, really hard and difficult thing to hear from the disciples. It goes against every natural emotion that they have. Even against their sense of patriotism. Against their religion that they grew in. Because the city and the temple will be destroyed. Once unbelief has conquered, true believers are not to stay among Jerusalem, lest they too are judged with her. And sometimes that is even the call for the church today, isn't it? The disciple of Jesus Christ has to abandon everything for him, himself, his preference, even his family relationships when they go against the gospel in order to serve the king. In the case of the disciples, they will need to abandon their own nation. They will need to abandon their religion in order to serve Jesus among the nations. And the whole thing will be so sudden, so quickly and so fast that they don't even have to take their belongings with them. They just have to escape. But is that it? Is this it? Are we to understand? <coughs> excuse me. That. <coughs> excuse me. Are we to understand that the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is all that Jesus has in mind? Some are tempted to say yes. However, that is hardly the case. Doing justice to the text and to the whole context of this prophecy needs to take account of God's own righteousness as well. Will he be the judge of Jerusalem and the temple because of their unbelief? But he will not judge the church when false in unbelief. Are we to think that the Jews were guilty of corruption and rejection of the gospel, but the church has never experienced those things? Contrary to that, and faithful to Jew- Jesus' pattern of prophecy, these occurrences have to do, again, with the whole, the whole of history, And the judgment of Jerusalem and the judgment over the temple are simply skeletons of a further judgment that is to come. After all, Peter affirms that God's judgment begins with the household of God, doesn't he? And so from time to time, due to the sins and temptations of the world and the devil, the church too will many times fall into corruption and unbelief. And then God has to judge her. The Reformation was indeed a big wake-up call for the church, uh, who, 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 filled with corruption and unbelief, was given away to their sins. And then leaving Rome to oppose the gospel and to uh, be heart of heart against the gospel and opposing the Reformation. That, that is God's punishment over her corruption. And don't just uh, think that that is true of Rome. That is true about ourselves as well. Our own history it's, uh, is in the past uh, a witness of that as well. Long gone are the days in which Presbyterians united fought for the gospel as a whole. Our history has seen countless of divisions, countless of ministries and ministers denying the gospel of Jesus Christ, countless of church buildings who are now empty and transformed into bars, And this goes and other places. God's judgment over unbelief. But maybe you're thinking, Christian, how do you know this goes beyond 70 AD? Can you be certain of that? Well, read verses 21 and 22. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So if we just read these verses, we quickly realize there is more than just 70 AD in view here. 70 AD hardly can be exemplified as the biggest tribulation that the world has ever experienced, ever. And hardly the elect means just only the Jews living in Jerusalem on 70 AD. Rather, these verses make a reference to two things. The first one I have already mentioned, and that is the repetitive and cyclical nature of Jesus' prophecy. That is, that these events will repeat once and again and again until Jesus comes. The second one makes reference to the still future and final punishment of God over unbelief. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple are simply types and shadows or a bigger harder judgment of God over the world and over those who are in unbelief. A day is coming when abomination will seem everything that there is, when belief will be all over the place, and the elect will feel like they are just a bunch, just a very few. And when that day comes, and it's coming, Jesus will come to bring the final judgment, and then he will issue eternity. And again, the fact that we have Jesus telling us about this is, is a reason for us to have the certainty, the hope that Jesus has conquered. How could, how could we not then, if Jesus has conquered, if he is victorious, how could we not with the certainty of our ancestors will be ready? Will ourselves be ready to say that if necessary, we are ready to offer our backs to the stripes our tongues to the knives, our mouths to the gags, and our whole bodies to the fire. Again, when our trials are over, then we will not be seeing things from the, from the perspective of the church under the cross, but from the perspective of the church in glory. Eternity will be ensued. The glory of heaven's coming down to earth will dispel every sightseeing of sin. Yes, brothers and sisters. We know things are changing, do we not? Even here in our beloved country. We know that uh, it feels like we are facing more opposition. But be encouraged. There is nothing new under the sun. The devil will not win. Jesus has, and he will win. And that has to be our perspective. And what a relief it is, isn't it? That we don't have to be calculating when the seven years will start when the three and a half years of tribulation will begin. What a relief that is that uh, we don't need to be trying to figure it out when you will be raptured, or if you will be raptured. Losing your sleep, because you don't know if you are going to be raptured. And what a relief it is that you don't need to figure who is the Antichrist, or trying to pay attention to everything that Russia does, because Jesus has told us everything that we need to know. And we don't need to be second-guessing or juggling with the text to know what is going to happen. Rather, we simply need to trust in Jesus. In the darkest of the times, in the best of the times, He has been, has been, and will be our brightest and true light. And let us call together with the church of past ages, even now. Yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a comfort it is uh, to know that you have everything in control, that there is nothing that surprised you, um, that from the beginning you have declared the end of things, and that in the midst of that, we, your church, are being protected, provided, uh, sustained by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for uh, the indestructible nature of the church that uh, you will always be with her and it will be there until the end of times lord we look forward to your coming we look forward to the day in which sin will be no more help us to look to you in hope and help us to wait upon you in jesus name we pray amen